everybody. Brian Lass and Scott Bowden right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. And on July 4th, 1977, our guest kicked off the greatest summer in Memphis wrestling's history as he outfoxed Jerry Lawler in the main event at the Mid-South Coliseum, winning $2,000 of the King's cold-hearted cash. By the end of July, this longtime tag wrestler was like a shooting star, a superstar, if you will, quickly becoming a made of it player by knocking the king off his throne en route to winning the Southern Heavyweight Championship for the first time. Although he paid for this newfound singles glory with blood, sweat, tears, and lots and lots of hair, this man proved that pound for pound, he was the toughest in the game. The universe in the summer of 77 may have been ruled by Star Wars, but in Memphis, no one outshined the superstar power of this tough Australian bulldog. That's right, Scott. Joining us today will be superstar Bill Dundee, a guest you've been trying to get on the show for quite a while now. The superstar will discuss Dundee's Memphis wrestling debut, why he and George Barnes got over so quickly in the territory and skyrocketed the tag team main events, his reaction when Barnes told him he was heading back to Australia, Dundee's personal feelings on Jerry Lawler, why... The scrappy Australian's ex-wife Beverly agreed to the hair match stipulations in 1977. Also, the popularity of Memphis wrestling around the world today and the story of how a young punk from Germantown with a big head got his very first autograph of any kind from the superstar in a black and white publicity photo back in 1978. Wow, really? A punk? And, you know, okay, I had a big head, but I was like taller than all the other kids and I had very thick hair. So, and I, yeah, I was a very polite young man back in those days. What happened? Uh, no idea. We'll be right back with episode 26, Baby, He's a Superstar, right after we listen to the first interview with the Australians on WHBQ way back in 1975. Audio you won't hear anywhere else but the KFR podcast. my bar in my living room and I come home after I've been away for a couple of weeks and my wife and my children are sitting there and they've got these belts up above them and I sit there and I go, well, gee, Bill, we are those belts and that's what they're saying. Oh, I'm to tell you something else. He's even got a belt that he won for himself and he lets me wear it sometimes. Oh, I do. Yeah, he, he, he's not all bad and mean. He's a real nice fella. Mm-hmm. But there's one thing and this is what we want. Eddie Marlin, you must have a knot right deep down in the part of your stomach boy, that he's not muscle. It's fear, it's fear of George Barnes and Bill Dundee that we are going to knock all out of your Monday night sport. So you're going to have the bruises, you're going to have anybody else, little fat, bald head Japanese. Excuse me, Well, well, whilst you're out here and you have the pleasure of our company, I would like to say one thing. If you could, if you could tell those black people that go, that go to Memphis Stadium that sit around in the bleachers, you know, the ones that are too frightened to come down into the ringside because they might they might get hurt or something. Could you tell them when we go back to the dressing room, please, please not to yell abuse at us because we have tender feelings and we do not like people like that to abuse us and so on. After all, we are strangers in your country and we are, and we do expect a little bit of uh, good behavior off your type of people. Well, I'm not certain you can count on any good behavior from Tojo. And this is another little tomorrow. thing I got for you black people out there. I told all you second mums last week you could call your baby George and Bill. 
that you black people keep to the Leroy and all the other funny names you call them, boys. Okay. Not George and not Bill, and that's all I want to say. Bill Dundee and George. Yeah, okay, fine. George and uh, Bill Dundee, they will be down there challenging for the NWA Southern uh, Heavyweight, or uh, rather, tag team. They got me doing it now. Tag team championship. So, Joe and Eddie Marlin. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. My guest today is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. He is one of the most successful, charismatic performers in the history of Memphis wrestling. In fact, he likely drew more money in the heyday of the, of the territory, starting with his debut in February 1975 with his tag team partner, George Barnes, than any other wrestler, with the only exception being the city's native son, Jerry Lawler. Although Lawler was the king of Memphis, our guest is the one who looked more like the city's king of rock and roll, wearing his trademark sequin jumpsuits and sunglasses in front of about 300,000 people watching live in Memphis every Saturday morning, including me, and the thousands who filled the Mill South Coliseum every Monday night in the 70s and 80s. As Lance Russell used to say, pound for pound, our guest is the toughest wrestler in the game, epitomizing the old saying, it's not the size of the dog in the fight, it's the size of the fight in the dog. Ladies and gentlemen, the former CWA world champion who dethroned Billy Robinson, the former Southern heavyweight singles and tag team champion and Mid-America title holder, and for years, according to Jim Cornette, the undisputed king of the Memphis gimmick table, the one and only superstar, Bill Dundee. Bill, welcome to KFR. No, that that just poured out of my heart just now, Bill. Yeah, I just thought of all night and thought of them kind words to say about Yeah, I get you. Oh, my gosh. Well, I think I cobbled it together uh, pretty nicely. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and all true. Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, starting, gosh, with right uh, at your arrival with uh, with Barnes, February eleventh, nineteen seventy five, was your first Monday night show. Which actually, I mean, that followed uh, the last appearance of Lawler in the territory. Lawler worked Jack Briscoe uh, the week before, and then had a falling out with Jerry Jarrett because. He uh, decided he didn't want to travel to Knoxville to help out Ron Fuller and appear on his shows. Um, and as the Southern champion, he felt like he shouldn't have to. And uh, Jarrett, right. uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, that, that, that was the best thing that happened for Barnes and I. Could Lawler had still been here, it would have been a little harder to get over. But they had abolished him, and there was a space they were looking for something. And Barnes and I happened to fill it. Yeah, uh, can you describe the 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 phone call that you got? Uh, I believe Jarrett had reached out to uh, Jim Barnett, uh, who was uh, a, a close uh, ally of his in the National Wrestling Alliance. Uh, was he he was the one who hooked you guys up, right? Well, with Bobby Chain was actually the, oh okay the guy that made the connection, and he came over to book to book for Barnett. And a lot of American wrestlers the years before that said, you guys need to go, go to America. But that was where it stopped. Nobody did nothing to help us. So when Bobby Shane said it, he said, you boys need to go to the States and you need to go to Memphis, Tennessee, or the Tennessee Territory. And the booker, a friend of mine, Jerry Jarrett, and I will call him. I said, Bobby, we've had this told us 20 times. He said, well, we'll do it right now. So we figured out the time difference. Called from Australia, 
talked to Jared. Jared talked to his mama, Nick Gullis, because that was who run the office in Nashville them, them days. And she started on the paperwork. And then, like you said, January 75, we showed up here. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and immediately, I mean, the, they say timing is everything in the wrestling business. I, you know, I, right. I, 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 th- I think, I honestly think that you guys would have gotten over anyway. Uh, now, would it ha- would it have happened so quickly with Lawler still on top? I, maybe not. But uh, gosh, within within a month, you guys, uh, you know, what? I, lo- I love the way they bring you guys in. They bring you guys in. Uh, you go over in a tag match, uh, kind of in the mid card, and then the next week, there's a big. One of those two ring triple chance battle royals. It's all like tag teams. There's 30, 33 men total. And of course, you and Barnes go over there. And then in your third weekend, you make the logical next jump and win the tag belts. And then you just go on a run. And within a month, you're headlining against Tojo and Dick the Bruiser and drawing seven, eight thousand people. And then you're well on your way to drawing your first sellout working on top. Uh, what was your first impression of? Uh, the territory specifically. Let's start with Jerry Jarrett, who was uh, quite young for a, to, to be a booker at that time. Right. Well, when we got here, Bobby Shane had explained all about who Jerry Jarrett was, the, the connection with Nick Gulis and, and his mama being in the office, and we knew everything about him when we got here. So the the, the Shane said us. Said, make sure you say their words to Jerry Jarrett when you talk to him. So we did. He said, make sure you tell Jerry Jarrett we came from Australia to work for you. You are our boss. So he kind of put that in our head. Tell that to Jarrett, and we did. And then Jarrett called the meeting up Monday night and said, we're going to push the two Australians, and if nobody likes it, you can leave. So with them words said to the crew, nobody left. They pushed us, and as you said, we got over like a house of fire, and did sell that business. Uh, yeah, and I think Jared probably really—that was probably wise of Bobby Shane to give you that advice because I know there, were, there obviously there were some naysayers uh, among the the veterans on the crew. Like, you know, who's this kid who's suddenly giving us finishes? But little did they know that <laughs> in car rides with Roy Welch that Jarrett had been, you know, feeding uh, Roy right. a lot of finishes and, and, and doing it on the fly and just using his imagination and everything he knew about storytelling. So he actually been kind of sort of secretly booking the territory for months. Yeah, and, and that's why Shane told us, make sure you tell him you come to work for him. Yeah. Yeah, and and wow! Ironically enough, Bobby Shane is is the guy who gave Lawler the his crown uh, in the King gimmick. So it's interesting the way uh, that your your destinies are sort of intertwined there. Yeah, yeah. Bobby Shane was a hell of a guy. But see, here was the other thing: we had a guarantee of Shane if it didn't work out in Memphis, he was coming back to the state to take the book back in Florida, and we would have just went to work for him, but I'm glad it got over to Memphis the way we did because I like Memphis. Yeah. But I, we still had a second choice. We could have went to Florida with Shane. Right, right. And, 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 and you know, I, I really want to focus on, on your career and not too much about Bobby Shane, but a lot of people, uh, I guess he's got, he's taken on this kind of legendary status uh, given the fact that his life was tragically uh, cut short in the same plane crash that injured uh, Austin Idol and, and Gary Hart. 
Um, as far as his his mind goes, uh, was he a, a sharp booker? And how was he as an in-ring performer? Uh, I've seen some bouts with Jack Briscoe, and it was fantastic. But, you know, Jack could have a fantastic match with just about anybody. Uh, what did you think of him? You know, Shane, yeah. Shane was a hell of a worker. He could wrestle. Well, everybody from Florida could wrestle, and they could shoot a little bit. So they, they could all do that. And Eddie Green with a stick for how good your mind was. I mean, wrestling is a mind game. It's not going to do with bumps. If you don't get the psychology of the business, you can't do it. And Shane had it. He knew what, what, what worked. Good guy, bad guy. That was how it worked, was about the day. So he he was a very talented man. Uh, and uh, you guys, so what was your impression walking out in the Mid South Coliseum for the first time? Uh, I can't I can't recall. Uh, I have your first actually, and I'll send this to you. I actually, ha- <laughs> and we'll probably play it during the broadcast. I actually have your first promo uh, at the WHBQ studios. Uh, now I don't have it on video, unfortunately, but I, I have some of your early interviews with Barnes uh, that were provided to me via audio cassette. This uh, displaced New Yorker would sit in front of his TV with a cassette recorder. <laughs> so I have all this great stuff with uh, early interviews with you and Barnes and and uh, uh, Lawler and Tojo. And it's just uh, Sam Bass is on there quite a bit. It's interesting to to see Lawler uh, and, and Bass and their chemistry and how it developed. Um, but right away, I mean, you guys were just drawing nuclear heat. Uh, <laughs> what uh, what were your thoughts uh, on, on the Mid-South Coliseum and the fans there? Well, the first, one we was on, it was about 2,500 people in the building, and it holds 10,000, so you can imagine how empty it looked. Mm. And Jared was telling us, oh, Memphis is a hell of a town. It does it, blah, blah, blah. But the fourth week we was there, it was damn near sold out. So, so it went from 2,500 people in three weeks. We were all with Jared and booking Bobby uh, George Barnes and Bill Dundee against Tojo and, and Eddie Marlin. So on today's crop, or if people would see that, Tojo and Eddie Marlin as the top baby face and me and Barnes as the heels, we don't look nothing like they look like today. But we could all work and we all knew the psychology of the business and wrestling is more psychology than it is bumps. Yeah. Well, which is not to say that that you and Barnes were not hell, were not hell of a bump takers because you were. Uh, and that was sort of unique to, to the territory. Right. You know, typically they would have these. Uh, I mean, I don't need to give you a history lesson, but this is more for our listeners. I mean, uh, traditionally, uh, it was a big territory town. And they, but they would have like big guy, like the, the Von Brauners or the interns. And they would come in with the so-called NWA world tag team championships, which didn't really exist, but who cares? Um, and they would work on top for a series of weeks, go undefeated until finally uh, the local team would break through and, and win the championship. Uh, and you guys were, were a different breed because you guys could, could work, you know, you could brawl, you could mat wrestle and you could take these crazy bumps that nobody in the territory had seen, in addition to the psychology. Right. So if you put it all together, it all works. It works. And, I, and, and like I said, we got educated in Australia 10 years working for Barnett with guys like Mark Lewin, Skull Murphy, Brute Bernard. They were, they were all masters of psychology, what they did. And if somebody don't get that into your head, 
you never get it. It's like them young kids today. I tell them, hey, you don't need all that. And they think that's what it is, all them crazy bumps. That won't draw you a dime. No, well, and... The psychology is what draws the money. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, uh, you and Lawler were, were masters of it um, and had just, you know, a feud like no other that, that drew so much money over a longer period of time in the, in the same territory, uh, probably, probably ever. I, I think right. I, I, I joked, uh, I had Jerry Jarrett on, uh, not too long ago and we were talking about, uh, the chemistry between you two guys. And I said, you know, I, I think those two will be, uh, battling at the gates of hell, you know, and, and drawing and drawing a, a full house. So, and I meant that as a compliment, by the way. Yeah, oh, I understand that. But here's the, the thing. I wouldn't say there was heat between me and Lawler, but everybody wants to be the things that are more powerful than superstars. I get that, but I wanted to be, you know, everybody wants to be the top star. Well, there's technically only room for one at the top pinnacle. Now, you can be just underneath him, which I was, and then I figured, well, the officer's pushing this guy like he's the, the last coming of Jesus, so you're not going to get over, over him to just get to be on his good side, and things will work out good for both of us, and it did. Yeah, and and, and again, it, it almost couldn't have been scripted any better. It's sort of like, I think, when when Lawler broke his leg, you know, short term, yes. I mean, 1980, 1980 the attendance was down, uh, but hell, but you, you guys still had some damn good houses with, with uh, you and Robinson having that great series of feud. And, and I think part of that was because it was something different. You know, because you could keep up with yeah. Robinson, whereas most people in the territory could not. You could do his style of wrestling, and you guys had some brilliant bouts and, and drew some great houses without Lawler on the yeah. card. And, and t- t- Tony Charles was in oh, yeah. wrestling matches. Yeah, it got super smooth. I mean, oh my goodness, I I've never I've never popped bigger for a backslide finish. Uh, there was a match with, with uh, where Tony Charles had challenged uh, Robinson, a non-title match, and he does a little thing where he slips out and just so it's just like he just slips right around Robinson and backslide. It's just a thing of beauty. Uh, and seeing you guys do you know some chain wrestling and and mat wrestling in in addition to you know you throw one of the best right hands. I know that. I know that speaking from experience <laughs> in the business. Uh, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, a couple of, a couple of times we were a little snug, but I probably had it coming. I was a little bit of a punk back then. <laughs> well, sometimes you just got to remind the guy that this, this, this not all, you know, the, the word, I hate the word fake. Predetermined, I'll go along with that. But the word fake, it ain't fake. Mm-hmm. There's anybody has never been in a wrestling ring or been slammed to an elbow dropped on them or kicked in the face. It ain't fake, believe me. Yeah, I, I was talking to somebody out here in California who wasn't too familiar with the wrestling business, and they, they said something about it being fake to me. And I said, okay, uh, get up for a second. And they stood up, and they, and they thought I was going to put a hold on them, and I picked up a chair. And I said, okay, I'm about to slam you as hard as I can in the back with this, because uh, God bless Larry Booker, uh, Larry, the, late, oh, yeah. the late Larry Latham. He came up to me, and he goes, and he goes now, Scott, uh, <clears throat> You know the finish, uh, and you know we got to beat the hell out of you. 
And I said, I know, I said, I know, I know. Uh, but they, uh, they laid, they, they laid them in there, you know, I kept my back flat and they laid it in there and it, it, you know, sounded like a gunshot, but, uh, but I survived. Um, yeah. So, and one thing that's interesting about the, about, uh, the promos with, with you and Barnes, and I think this may have been one key, uh, that made you guys stand out was just the, the, the difference, uh, in the delivery, Barnes almost came off a little bit, almost like Nick Bockwinkle, you know, very reserved and, you know, uh, very arrogant. And you were more the firecracker. So when it shifted to you, there was all that, like this energy and, and it was just tremendous stuff. Uh, do you think that that was the reason that, that you guys weren't exactly the same? Uh, did, do you think yeah. that, that helped? Yeah, I, I think it helped me. George was more laid back. He was more comfortable doing the, the interview, so he was a kind of laid back and comfy doing it. And I was nervous as a whore. Church and I yelled and screamed and dashed on and walked and yelled. So it was just the difference. Is, you know what I mean? So I think that we we helped one another along because we hadn't done interviews until we got here. Oh, okay. Uh, when you do, when you're doing. Jobs in on Australia. We worked every night in Australia, but but we wasn't on top, so nobody wanted the interviews. So we started doing. Hey, hey, Bill. Yeah. Hey, Bill. I, I'm sort of you're kind of going in and out a little bit. Can uh can can I? Just, uh, oh, shit, Dan. I'm walking. There, I'm walking around. Okay. Getting nervous energy. So I'll sit back there. All right. How's how's that? That's a lot better. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, okay. I, I, you know what? It's funny because I do the same thing too. Uh, typically, when I'm on phone calls, I just can't sit still, and I, I got to walk around the house. But uh, yeah, I, pre- I appreciate that. I, I found that out the hard way during one of my early uh, podcasts where we had a guest who was, was kind of running late for an appointment. And he was he, he was kind enough to stay on the phone, but it was difficult to actually. It was Dave Brown. <laughs> Who, uh, oh. yeah, who for years did not speak to me, uh, but, uh, but I was glad to have him on on the show. And what did you? What were your? What were your thoughts on Lance Russell and Dave Brown has uh, has an announcing duo when when you first arrived? And and what was your relationship with like like with Lance over the years? I, I got, we we got along good from day one with Lance, and it would be hard not to get along with. Him. And the good thing about him was he knew I was. More nervous than George talking, so Lance would have to drag the interview out of me. He, he would feed me things to say, so he helped me a lot when I first went to talk or started talking or doing interviews. So I, I got to take my hat, hat off to him for that, and and he was very patient, and, and you know he would feed me lines to say or tell me things to say. Now, the word jungle bunny, I came up with that all by, all by myself. <laughs> you, couldn't, you, you couldn't do that interview today. No, you could not. I have that on, hey, I have that on audio, too. So. Right. <laughs> we can play it on this podcast, but we could, you know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Right. And, and I understand that they were just throwing things at you guys from the balcony. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, the, where all the... the, the the brothers and sisters sat up in the balcony, and that's why we said, yeah, all the jungle bunnies sit up top and they throw whiskey bottles at us. Holy cow. So, <laughs> and it was true. They would get them little shot bottles, and they would throw, throw them at you. Oh, they, I, didn't, I think, wouldn't they throw batteries? Uh, yeah, uh, bat- 
batteries, all kinds of things. And 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 I and I think around I think Lawler told me a story like how he you know when you could smoke in the Coliseum, which is you know I have some pictures of fans just you know everyone's at ringside just lighting up, which is <laughs> just, just hilarious. Yeah. Um, and and they would burn you guys with cigarettes sometimes. Yes, uh, they would. Oh I man, if you was a heel back in the good the good old days, they they didn't like you. And and I, th- and I think that's hard for some fans to grasp uh, it, and and it's not I was, uh, when i was talking to jared about it you know he's you know he calls it like a shakespearean play right and um uh, he's he says that you know a lot of people think that everybody believed it was real back then and that's that's not the case but we never re- re- were open about the secrets of the business we we, we kept that right. illusion it was real to us and the fans if they did have any disbelief they checked it at the door when they walked in the Coliseum and then, you know, you had these great personal angles that Jarrett believed in personal issues, draw money and, uh, and just the realistic snug working style of guys like you and Lawler. Right. Yeah. But, but I mean, we believed it and we was try, trying to convince everybody else it was real. So most of the time it worked that way, but, uh, and one thing, and one, one thing that was great about you, Bill, uh, and, and I've said this, I said with the, with the possible exception of Ricky Steamboat, nobody sold better than Dundee, uh, especially after you know when you turned babyface and you were playing that underdog role, you know you just you'd be down on your out, just you know it, just such realistic selling, uh, and and then out of nowhere you'd hit that flying body press off the middle rope. And uh, and and get the three count. So you you were you were never out of it, um, which was right. yeah, which was which was cool for for a kid to see to see this guy uh, overcoming the odds. Yeah, I mean uh, the the first book we ever wrote, David and Goliath, was the story, and you you know who won that, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, you know, he, he, had, he, had, he, had, he had to use a gimmick, but you know, hey. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I'll tell you another one that can sell, Ricky Morton. Oh gosh, yes, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. But back in back in that era, you're right. Ricky Steamboat, Ricky Morton, and Bill Bill Dundee would be do as good a job of selling them big guys as anybody. Yeah, absolutely, and getting that and getting that crowd up, and just when it looks like you're going to make the the comeback, the heel cuts you off, you know, with a hair pull or whatever, and and just little cheating moves that you know a lot of the guys don't do nowadays. Yeah, um, they don't cheat. They don't. They don't understand what healing means. They think cussing the fans, the fans is healing, but it ain't. It's what you do to your opponent. Right. Right. Or or the cheapy, like where they wear, uh, if they go into, uh, I don't know, Dallas and they're wearing a Washington Redskins jersey, they think that's heat. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. No, uh, you're supposed to get heat by beating up your opponent and the people are mad at you for that. The kids today don't understand that. Well, and and I believe that you guys, uh, one of the reasons why the houses went up so quickly and you guys were drawing money with Tojo and Marlon is because you guys injur- injured Marlon uh, pretty yeah. early. And I think that explained why Dick the Bruiser had come in uh, to to sub for uh, for Eddie while he was off selling the injuries. And then he came back and then, man, you guys were off to the races drawing money. And, and you know, I've, I've watched some some uh, old matches w- with, with Eddie Marlon and he doesn't get the credit he, he deserves either. As a guy who who was very solid in the ring, um, and and right. what yeah, uh, what were your thoughts about, on 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 Eddie Marlin? 
what you saw with Eddie was what you got. He had them long, dangly arms, and he was a country boy. He talked country style, and he would just do one of them. Like, well, I, I may not win this match, but they'll know they've been in the fight. He had that attitude, you know, through the whole match. I mean, so I, I like working with him, and he was one of the reasons Barnes and I got over when we hurt his neck. Yeah. And then Tojo, look at Tojo, four feet two and 300 pounds. <laughs> I, I felt like a tall guy standing beside Tojo. <laughs> <laughs> well, and uh, a lot of people have asked me, they're like, you know, I just I just don't get it. Uh, you know, I, I look at this guy and how did he get over? And I'm like, you don't understand Memphis and you don't understand psychology. And, and he did. And just, you know, I look at Tojo and I see the little things, you know, when he would interfere, he, you know, he would do that little, not quite tippy toe, but you know what I mean? Like a, like a thief in the night, you know, like a, like a, a, a Pearl Harbor job as a gorilla yeah. monsoon would say. He was just so sneaky in, in the things that he would do and he could lay in the chops and he had the facial expressions and uh, just, uh, uh, and nobody looked like him. That's another thing too that I think is is missing today, Bill. Uh, the fact that right. Memphis, Memphis had big, small, everything in between. Uh, gosh, there's so many characters. And then here you are with this, uh, you know, with this with this accent. You sound like nobody else, and everybody just had like this distinct personality. Yeah, and told to you had it too. And, and it was, I mean, he wasn't tall. I guess he, he was what. Five feet four, maybe. Uh, yeah, if that. Yeah. That would be with his shoes on, and he had them them wooden shoes that he would hit you with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was but like that he, was... <laughs> he was the other thing. The people listened to what you said. The interviews is what drew the houses. You know what I mean? I mean, you had to. If you were the good guy, you had to get the people to to love you by what you said on Saturday morning. And if you was the bad guy, you had to piss him off by what you said on Saturday morning. So that was really what drew the houses. This, this, on, this is, and I hate talking about people that ain't here, but Danny Gilbert and Eddie Marlin was a tag team. And Tommy was the far better worker and the far better talker. But the and it was two different styles. If you was going on just smooth and a great wrestling style, nobody did it better than Tommy Gilbert. But I believe Eddie Marlin was the money in the tag team. Well, yeah, yeah, you, you very well could be right uh, because it's, it's it it seems like to me and just the stuff that I've been listening to and some of Eddie's interviews, it was almost like he was one of the people, like almost like that, right. connect, almost like that connection Dusty Rhodes had, you know. Where, but but in a different way because he was he was unpolished on his interviews, but that was a way a lot of the a lot of country boys spoke, you know. Right, um, and that that's how Eddie spoke. Yeah. The difference between Eddie and Dusty was that lisp that Dusty had was phony. Well, he never talked like that lisp, baby. He never said that in real life. That that was his deep TV voice, but it worked. <laughs> 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. We talked a little bit about Dusty, uh, uh, the, the last show, uh, his two matches with Lawler in, in 77. Uh, and I think they drew about 7,000 people. And then they were about a month away from starting the big angle. And, th- and this, I don't know if you know this, but my dad was the one who would make me turn off cartoons. I wanted Foghorn Leg- Leghorn, but I had to settle for Lance Russell, which uh, looking back, maybe they weren't that different, but <laughs> in their delivery. Sure. <laughs> but, right. but uh, and, and, and I, you know, the first guy I remember seeing is the, is the Stomper who started headlining around the same time that you and you and Barnes well, about the time you and Barnes, the, the run was coming to an end when, when Barnes left. And I, I thought he was cool. He was like the, the like, like the incredible Hulk, uh, tossing guys around like sacks of garbage, um, uh, and, and drawing and drawing money. Uh, and then, uh, Lawler was about to come back that summer. Uh, what was it? I don't want to get too far before I forget to ask this. What was your reaction when Barnes told you that he was leaving? Um, and was it, was it simply a matter of him being homesick or? Well, he had wife tr- troubles and he had, she wouldn't, she didn't want to come and he, you know, I mean, he, you know, I think when I, when I left Australia, I knew I wasn't going back unless he reported me. I, I came to stay. Jones came to play it by ear, and his wife didn't want to come, and all kinds of family things. So he said, well, I'm just going home. And I've talked to him two or three times. Well, I talked to him on the Internet all the time, and he wishes he had stayed, but that's 40 years too late now. Yeah. Well, and, uh, you know, I don't know about f- for George, but it, it actually turned out to be the best thing for you. She was sitting in the office and me and Barnes and walked in and just Nick said, oh, this, is this is our new heel team. And she said right then, she said, that little cute cute one needs to be a good guy <laughs> and i said no ma'am i'm a heel i'm a bad i'm a bad guy i don't want to be a cute guy i didn't understand the pictures and all the kind of things that went along with it but i was determined to be a heel she said no how you look you need to be the good guy so when jules left this switched me baby face and the Rest is history, as they say. Yes, indeed. Uh, Jerry Jarrett told that exact same story last week, um, and it was almost like it was just—it was meant to be—and and quickly. And then I believe uh, this time you turned babyface by saving Eddie Marlin uh, from the uh, right. by beat down from the inter- the interns are, are doing their best to increase business at the local hospital uh, <laughs> and delivering a beat down on Eddie Marlin, and an, an unlikely hero uh, makes the save. Uh, you run out. And uh, you and you and Eddie Marlin formed this odd couple tag team, right? Yeah, but it worked. Hell I mean, yeah, people buy a ticket to see it. Absolutely. And and Bill, I, I found some footage of of that bout, and you know, it, I think it's I think everybody who's a young wrestler should watch the last few minutes of this match because it's so fluid. And full of just it's it's crazy the number of false finishes in, in about two or three minutes, 
you guys are doing some tremendous things, but but it's not. It doesn't look rehearsed. It doesn't look choreographed. It's su- it's smooth. There's all there's all this stuff, and I'm sure you guys talked about it maybe a little bit. But man, it it it, it was this, like this great con- controversial finish to set up a rematch where they screw you guys uh, out of the. Uh, I think Raimi inter- interferes in the end and costs you guys the match. But it's so well done, um, and and should be just. Uh, it's a clinic on how how a tag match should work. Yeah. And that's what the kids don't get today. I've watched the local tag matches, and they're really not a tag. To me, a, a tag team works together to get to the end of the match and win. Today, you watch some of them young guys, and it's like two single matches going on in a tag match. It's not like they're a team. Yeah. Yeah, and I th- well, and I th- that could be in part. I think a lot of guys don't like being a part of a team. They, they sort of de-emphasize tag wrestling. I, I don't think. Right. I don't think it may it may come back uh, if if Vince ever when Vince's deal with the devil runs out. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, I hear you. But I, <laughs> Memphis will never be what it was. Wrestling will never be what it was. I mean, it, it, Vince is going more to TV now. And he's doing live shows, so I don't watch none of his stuff. But that's what they tell me. He's got, he's going, he's got, Didn't he just sign a deal with one of them? Yeah, TV yeah, stations? yeah, with Fox. Uh, so that's yeah. sort of for, for TV wrestling. TV wrestling. Yeah, yeah. That, I know. Unfortunately, that that very well could have sealed wrestling's fate, as if it weren't already. Uh, because it's come, becoming more of a of a television program, but right. written by television writers instead of wrestling folks, uh, which I, I I'll I'll never understand why why they don't at least have some more some more balance there. I know Michael Hayes is on the staff and all that kind of stuff, but um, anyway, Michael was away out there. What, pardon? Michael was away out there in the good old days. Oh yes, I know. <laughs> He can, he can get a little funky. <laughs> well, I was there the night uh, the uh, WFI convention, Wrestling Fans International, was there. Uh, Cornette, of course, was a part of that group. Eddie Gilbert uh, was 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 with them. Right, I think it was around the time that Eddie was uh, debuting and working his initial bouts. And uh, uh, Mark uh, Mark uh, Hildebrand, uh, I don't know if you know him. He was a big fan. Uh, all this group of fans were there, and it was the first night that the Freebirds came out to uh, their Skinnerd anthem. And I was there with my uncle and it was, they were working a tag match with you and Lawler. Uh, I guess a rematch of the, the, t- the infamous TV bout where Lawler has a really bad perm. And I believe Hayes shit his trunks <laughs> during, during one of the falls. Cause he was so nervous. <laughs> uh, what did you think of Terry Gordy? Who was a, a young. He was 16 years old when he came in here. He was just a baby. It was unbelievable for being a guy so young. He he understood the business. He understood the psychology, and he could work. Yeah, yeah, big, uh, big bump taker, uh, realistic offense, and 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 meanwhile, you and they complemented each other so well because Hayes was was a decent, I think, decent enough worker with superior psychology. He went. he was stiff, brother. That's why they brought the other one. What was his name? <laughs> Buddy Roberts. <laughs> yeah, that's why that Roberts kid came in. They had to get Michael out of the ring, and they made him the manager. He, he killed you. 
Uh, okay, I feel like we could we could talk about '79 for a long time because that's when I, you know, I was about eight years old then. And that's when I was really starting to go to the Coliseum quite a bit. But let's 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 take it like a little bit back again. Uh, you and Lawler actually had your first bouts in 1975 as a part of a uh, Southern te- uh, Southern heavyweight title uh, tournament. The title had been vacated. I believe Lawler had, he, he had been a baby face and then he turned heel uh, throwing fire at uh, Barb Armstrong's ribs. And so Armstrong was out selling the injury. They announced a big tournament that's taking place across. And I love the way that they would set these things up. Like, you know, they sent in Bob Roop who won the Florida tournament and actually had Gordon Soley interviewing Roop. Uh, about that, and uh, and then I believe they had also Gordon in, in Georgia interviewing Ron Fuller, who was going to come in because he had won the Georgia tournament, and you and Lawler were fighting for the Tennessee spot, and I believe those were the initial bouts. Uh, did, did, do you remember clicking right away with with Lawler in the ring? Say that part again. Do I remember what we Lawler? Do you remember clicking with him right away? Like, yeah, I mean it just felt right. Yeah. And when you, you know, he's he, he, the thing with me and Lawler, for as egotistical as we both were, <laughs> we wanted the whole match. <laughs> we wanted the whole match to be good. So you both have to shine. You both have to do what you do well for the whole match to, to click. But so he would work his ass off to make me look, look good, and I'd work my ass off to make it, him look good. And, you know, we were both professionals at that, and that's what we were trying to do. We were trying to have the best match on the card, and you have to be working together for that to happen. Yeah, and, and after they after those initial bouts, they, they keep you guys apart for for a long and for a small territory that's that's pretty amazing that they were that they were doing that and uh Jarrett recalls that it was almost by design uh because he, you know he wanted to to put you guys on a on a trajectory right where he gets you know keeps building up Lawler has this NWA world heavyweight title contender beating these top names and you're you keep winning but you know you never interact too often and then that leads to 77 which is the feud that really hooked me on the business and uh so it's all your fault bill that i even got into the business <laughs> i hear you <laughs> but uh, and and what see when when it clicks the way me and Lawler did the people didn't care what we was doing in the ring as long as we was in the same ring we could be a t- tag team we could be fighting one another we could even be in a six man tag but they didn't know that they would think Dun- Dundee and Lawler's going to get mad at one another before that this is over, so they would come to see what we would we would do. Yeah. And most of the time, we would keep it pretty state, so we shot the angle, and then we would be fighting one another again. So that was a backup Jared had forever. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I love the way that, that they – Get, you know, they work you back into that main event spot as a singles wrestler uh, by having you first survive being in the ring with Leroy Brown. Uh, you know, you lasted 10 minutes and then the next week you actually beat him. And then the week after that, and which is this infuriating Lawler, you know, he's like, he's going to crush that little runt, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you, you keep proving him wrong and, he, and Lawler won't take you seriously. And then you beat uh, Plowboy Frazier and that sets up 
imagine even then Lawler goes, I can beat you twice in 10 minutes. You know, he's still, he's still, you still haven't proven yourself in his eyes. And so the whole thing yeah. slowly, gradually builds and uh, just uh, really, really great stuff. See, that, that kind of stuff has to get some thought. You can't just show up and do it that way. You have to kind of know where you go. And I don't know how Vince books Vince is sure one of the writers write it. I don't know how they do that up there. But, but we would go in the office on a Monday and sometimes work Monday to Friday to get the TV for that next Saturday, roll out and tear it up and write it out again. So we put a lot of time and effort into what we did. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I'm assuming uh, that that was a good way, not only, I mean, it helped pass time on the road, uh, but it also, I'm sure, was, was sort of a, an education for you from that standpoint, maybe, uh, you know, just being with Jared and talking about these ideas. And, you know, you had all the time in the world because you're because you're, you know, if you're driving to Louisville, you got a lot of time on your hands. Uh, is that where a lot of the 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 ideas would start? And and how often would you guys call audibles uh, if something wasn't quite working uh, Would that? Would that often occur in the car after uh, about or. Yeah, you could do so on Tuesday night, Louisville and coming back, you would. Talk about what what happened that night, and nothing happened. But most of the time, that TV was wrote at the office in Jared, the big office up there in Hendersonville. And that's where all took place. I go there every day. Yeah, so uh, Lola didn't, didn't, didn't show up every day, but we would talk to him Monday nights or wherever we was with him. But me and Jared were at that office every day. Um, and, and hey, Bill, and can can you uh, make sure you're speaking directly into the phone because you're you're going out? Yeah, okay. I dropped I dropped my glasses. Oh. I ran over to pick them up. So. That's, that's all right. Yeah, I'm back. I'm all back right. normal now. There you go. All right. Um, and let's see. Uh, I can't remember. Oh, um, what what did you what did you think of Jarrett's uh, mind as a as a booker? Did you find him to be really detail oriented? Yeah, but it. it He's that way on life. He's very detailed and oriented running his life. He's nothing scatterbrained about him. He gives everything a lot of thought, and he certainly gave the wrestling business a lot of thought. But that that's how he is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's one thing that's, you know, been really important to me, uh, to, to have him on the show and, and you just hear him talk about how he developed Lawler and about how, you know, how he brought you guys in and then had plans for you as a single star and just the way he would just kind of map out everything's of course, talking with you guys and getting your input, but, uh, just, just, it's, it's amazing to, to hear. And, and unfortunately you got guys like Bruce Pritchard trying to, uh, tarnish, uh, Jarrett's reputation out of jealousy. I, I I can only assume, uh, right. but it, it's clear that, that, you know, Jared may not remember some of the date, the exact dates, but it's all still there and clicking. And, uh, I don't know if you're aware, but he's, you know, he started his own podcast and immediately some of the Pritchard's, uh, stupid fanboys came after him and he just squashed them. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he just really, uh, shot them down, uh, verbally. Uh, they were no match for him. No, I mean, and and the Bruce Pritchard thing. When we went to Houston, Texas, Paul Bosch was the promoter. 
And Pritchard, Bruce Pritchard was Paul Bosch's student. He worked in the office. He was the gopher. And when Jared came in and helped helping and we started to book it, he got kind of jealous. So that's how all the heat technically started way back then. And, and it just built and built. And then when you start knocking people and saying things, that isn't quite true that, you know what I mean? He just looks stupid. And, and the preacher kid, I don't know where he ever booked anywhere. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, really? I, no, I know. I, 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 I know. I know what you mean. I mean, I know he came up with, with the Brother Love character, but that was just, you know, his own deal. And I think maybe Vince turned him occasionally for ideas, but he never ran a territory like Memphis, which was so unique and that it, it no, ran every week. He and, never ran. He, he didn't even run Houston. Right. Paul Bosch did. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I I go along with him as far as we had a little bit in Louisiana. For a short time, I go along all right with him just being around him, but I didn't have to do much with him at all. Right. Uh, well, getting getting back to uh, 77, you and Lawler, uh, the first bout that you guys have after you beat uh, Plowboy Frazier, you guys are about, uh, I think, about 5,600 people, and then it happens. You know, the stipulations just get crazier and crazier each week. You guys are working on top. I, I want to say, I think with there was a one month, there was a one week uh, where, you, where, you, where you were separated, and Lawler won back the Southern title from Paul Orndorff, and then of course that came into play. Uh, the belt was added to all the crazy, you know, the, the Cadillac. The Cadillacs were up, and and I believe that did that occur when you pulled into Jarrett's parking lot and a new Cadillac, and Jarrett was like, "We're going to turn that into an angle." <laughs> no, we did it with the old one to start with. Oh, okay. Because <laughs> Lawler destroyed yeah. it, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Then we broke the windshield and all that. Yeah, I've got... Trying to stop. But yeah, it was the one he drove up. Hey, hey, Bill, speak into the phone. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I... Hey Bill, you went out again. I, I had to. I had to pee. I had to ah. clear the phone down. <laughs> well, just tell me if you need to take a piss break. <laughs> oh shit. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. I can't. Re- <laughs> I lost my train of thought there for a second. Oh, the crazy stipulations and uh, your hair is at stake and Mickey Poole's hair. Mickey Poole ends up getting his head shaved. The Southern title's tra- trading back and forth. Uh, you want to get rid of the old Cadillac, so Lawler comes out with a baseball bat, destroys it. I have pictures uh, from Mike Shields, and Lawler hits that windshield, and you see the look on Lance's face. It's like he is so disgusted. <laughs> and it's just uh, tremendous. And that was what he did. And I knew mine. I didn't want to be the king of Memphis. I, I was quite happy being the superstar. So whatever they did with all was great. And what they did with me, I enjoyed it. So there was no real jealousy nowhere. And that, that's what made it all work. Dave Brown knew what he was there for. I knew what I was there for. And it, and it all worked. 
Yeah, yeah, just uh, just the, the chemistry with it with the entire crew back then was really something. Um, now, when when they finally, you know, they because they, you win the first uh, time that your hair is at stake. Uh, I believe that's some of the the best footage that's still available from that series. Uh, where and it, and it's just brilliant. Lawler's just pounding away, but you won't stop. You keep fighting, and then finally you just fall on your feet. You know, you're, you're just flat out. You're you're and uh, Guy Coffee, who is supposedly an NWA official, <laughs> um, yeah. says, you know, says that he's stopping the match, and and then you go, no, I can't. And and Lance is capturing the moment. He he's like Dundee screaming, my hair, my hair. And the NWA says there's no responsibility. The match continues, and you pull out the the big win in a huge pop in dramatic fashion. And then you guys come back to I think it's like almost 13 matches total in in, in Memphis headlining. And the crowds get bigger almost every week and draw a couple of sellouts along the way. It's just, it's just amazing. No, I don't think anybody could ever do that again, like ever again. And I don't know how, how often it was done in other territories where, I mean, 13 weeks or 13 matches. That's a, that's a lot. Uh, but right. you, got, you guys kept everybody it hooked. I think the closest steamboat and flare may have done a couple of three matches yeah. over in Charlotte, but, but they never worked as often as me and Lawler. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, and they were, they were both good workers, but they were not Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee matches. I will back our match against anybody, even today's standard. Yeah. Um, and it, it finally all culminates with, uh, and again, Jared is starting to, he wants to position Lawler and switch him back babyface, uh, do a little retirement angle uh, that's further fueled when, when Elvis Presley passes away, uh, right in the middle of all this crazy stuff that's going on between you two. And so it, it, the finale's a hair match, you lose your hair. Uh, what, what, what was your reaction? How did you feel about it when, when Jared came to you with that stipulation? The hair deal? Yeah. Well, that, just like everything in the wrestling business, that was done for money. We agreed on the price of it, and I was happy with it. So I got a haircut. And that was the down payment on your house. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to buy a house, so that was the one. Go on, Miss Dundee said, go sign the papers on that house. We got the money. <laughs> what, hap- what happened to your hair? <laughs> that you were moving into the house with my hair type thing. <laughs> and then uh, I guess he furnished the house with her haircut money. <laughs> Beverly's deal. That, that that was that was funny. <laughs> we was we we like you said just a minute ago. We had done it all. We were run, running out of stuff to do. So Lawler and me and Jarrett sitting up up at the office trying to figure something to come back with. So Lawler said it. I I keep thinking he said it in jest, but he didn't. He meant it. He said, "What about Beverly hair?" <laughs> and I said, "Beverly Beverly's hair." He he said, "Yeah, you think she'd go for it?" <laughs> and I thought, "Well, I don't know." But lunchtime when I go home to get ready to go to Louisville, I will ask her. So I go home, and like you, you said, the word was poor, so I said, Beverly, 
Well, what do you think of my bald head? Is that st- starting to look pretty good now? Hair was starting to come back. I said, well, see, it grows back. I said, now we bought this new house, but we go get a whole house full of furniture. What about if you do your hair? <laughs> you said, like that? <laughs> I said, well, that's the rules. Yeah, you're supposed to do it like that. She said, well, okay. So I'm wow. still... Laura in Louisville. I said, hey, man, I thought, Beth, she's going to go for it. He's all, you know, how he he rubbed his hands together, his eyes lit up, and he's all excited. (laughs) Because he knows what the finish is, right? Yeah, yeah. So anyway, we we build for that. We have another sellout. But but the love of God changed the way mine was because we kept unplugging the shears. And the, the barber got scared. He said, I was in the ring with him, and I said, Doc, Barbara, hey, man, you go get a haircut, man. He said, they keep on plugging the shares. They won't work. So he had a pair of scissors, and he just snipped bits here and there. And then he said, take it out of the ring. So I just stood right out of the ring and went to the back. But it was all gaped up. It wasn't, it wasn't bald, but <laughs> you, you could tell it wasn't a hairdresser that right. took the time doing it. Yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, uh, uh, I think Cornette was on recently, and he was talking about that story. And Lance had told me that that he was reluctant to continue the haircut, and you were just pleading. You know, you're her husband, but you're going, "Hey, man, you got to get that hair off." Yeah, <laughs> oh, I mean, my gosh, because if you know the people wanted that, they wanted that. The, you know, if you promise that stipulation, even though I'm sure they right. felt they felt sorry for you. Hey, that was the deal. We paid for we paid to see somebody get their hair cut. So they were going to leave until uh, at least some of it was off. Yeah. So, so once they hacked at it and cut it off, and that Lance said, Bill, just just go. Yeah. Yeah. Go and, out the lane, go to the back. Well, and then the, then the the following year, uh, I, I think Jared, I think all of you maybe learned a very valuable lesson about a stip, like promising a stipulation and not delivering when it's a hair versus hair with Lawler and Valiant, and no one has agreed on a finish, <laughs> and they go in there, and uh, I believe there was some last minute scrambling. I believe they even asked you if you would get your hair cut again. <laughs> uh, this is what screwed that up. Marlon said he would do it. He was going to screw it. He would hit him with a chain or do whatever. And Lawler really believed that people would not want him to get his hair cut because handsome Jimmy cheated. I said, brother, you saw what they did with Beverly. They don't care. You advertise a haircut. We got to cut the hair. Wouldn't have to bullshit. They want to see a haircut and a bit thing for one. Yeah, but so, we got out of we got out of that. Yeah, by the skin of your teeth. Now, I, bl- I believe it was a deal where, where uh, Valiant came out on crutches and that whole gimmick and and uh, yeah. nailed Lawler, and then you ran out to make the save. And it, I, I believe it appeared that he was going to shave your head, and and Lawler prevented that from happening. And they thought that the crowd would roar and be into that and get some more heat on handsome in the process but instead they rioted and took their aggression out on the right. on the on the coliseum chairs because valiant actually beat lawler 
he hit him with a crutch, right? Broke yeah. the crutch over his head, and that, yeah. down he went. So he should have cut his hair. <laughs> Uh, well uh you know and and the the drama of of not only the feud between you and Lawler but also I was always kind of wondering because this is like you know you guys were my first wrestling heroes and I was wondering like you know how how can this alliance last how how long can it last because Lawler does the retirement deal where he's I kind of wish he had said that he was going into art or you know going to make a living that way because I I don't know if people really bought the music deal but (laughs) But but at no. any but at, <laughs> but at any rate, um, they do they do the deal and uh, handsome it allows handsome. That's and again perfect timing for handsome Jimmy because Lawler uh, is on the shelf for a few or out of the business for a few weeks. Does this uh, you know interview where he's saying the death of Elvis has shown him that there's more to life than being a, a celebrity, and you know he's like I don't want to be wrestling when I'm in my forties. Well, and we all know how that turned out, but. Um, Anyway, he got you. He could still throw a hell of a right hand along with you. So, yeah. oh yeah, he was always good at that. Yep. And well, I don't think that's one reason why why you guys have had such long careers because you, you understood that the business wasn't all about crazy bumps. It was largely psychology. So, uh, that's what professional wrestling is: psychology. Um, so, and, and eventually the, the, it, there's, you know, there's, uh, there's this big feud with the blonde bombers, uh, Wayne Ferris, Larry Latham, probably some of the, it's probably next to the Kaufman deal, which I hate that everyone points to the Andy Kaufman thing as, as being, uh, what Memphis is all about. Cause it, it really wasn't. And, and truth is Andy Kaufman never sold out the Mid-South Coliseum. Um, but you and Lawler did certainly many times. But the but the fantastic angle it was sort of like a a, re, a restart on the territory because Robert Fuller had been in and doing some booking in '79 and uh, crowds were down and they needed to do something to get people's attention and boy you guys did it with that uh, Tupelo concession stand brawl. Right, and that, that that was one of them things that technically technically just happened. I mean, we, we knew we was kind of going to do it, but we didn't quite know what. What we was going to do with the Lawler through the pickle at Wayne Ferris, and it was on. Yeah, and the mustard, <laughs> Lance's call, his dramatic call. Oh, there's mustard everywhere. I hope it didn't get the camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, but the jar of pickles was what started the the fight. Oh me, and uh, and I and the uh, I believe the woman who was part owner of the concession stand, she's in the back sc- screaming her lungs out. Uh, yeah. The whole the whole thing is just so gritty and unbelievable. It's almost it, you guys were were hardcore before anybody tossed that term around, right? And they make that they made the decision to switch Lawler heel, and and again, this is I think a great example of Jerry Jarrett's mind. He has a date on Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, you guys have a couple of, of bouts. And I don't know, you know, a lot of people who talk about Ric Flair being the greatest world champion and all that, in the eyes of Memphis fans, it was Nick Bockwinkle. Uh, I, right. I thought Nick was tremendous. Uh, what were your thoughts on your first couple of bouts with him for the world championship? No, he was unreal. He was a better worker than Flair. He talked better than Flair. He didn't go on goofy. He was, he was a classy... He was a classier guy in real life, so it carried over into the ring. He was just a class act. Yeah, 
yeah, pure class, as as uh, as we say. Uh, yeah, and just you know, and you always had to have a dictionary on hand to <laughs> figure out some of the. Wait a minute, what did he just call Lawler? Or what did he say about Dundee? <laughs> he, he would use some big words. <laughs> Uh, but you, yeah, you guys had tremendous balance, I think in Lexington, Louisville and in Memphis and boy, I'll never forget. Cause my parents sometimes would let me stay up late to get the wrestling results from on channel five. And, uh, Jack Eaton said that the, that the bout between you and Nick was still in the ring. And I was like, Oh, uh, and, ju- and right when the broadcast was going off the air, Mason Granger goes, we just got word on the match between, uh, Dundee and Nick Bockwinkle for the AWA world title. Bill Dundee was the winner of that match. And I guess it was by DQ, but he didn't say that. I was like, yeah, I thought I went to bed thinking that you were the world champion. And I was crushed to find out that that was not the case the next morning when I got the newspaper. Don't don't switch on a DQ. Nope. Nope. And, uh, and Bill, I, I, I told the story a couple of times, but you know, that's one of the things I think that's missing today. You know, that connection with the local wrestler, there's just something special about it. And, I, I, so many times, and of course that morning, definitely that Tuesday morning after I'm thinking that you're the world champion, I, you know, as soon as that newspaper hits the driveway, I run, you know, there's no internet and I, I start opening the newspaper right there. My dad said that we would have like hundreds of rubber bands, you know, in the driveway. <laughs> um, and he would get on to me about it because I couldn't wait to get, even get inside. And I would, you know, take the sports section out, go to the, to the results. And to get, and when I saw that it was a DQ, I was just, oh man, I was just crushed. But uh, it's a, it's a moment that you don't forget though. And uh, I just wonder if, if fans today have that same connection with their, with their wrestlers. No, it, it's a, it, we don't have the TV to build the character, to build their character. Well, and I and I think you know you you obviously want stars to be larger than life and all that kind of stuff, but but you guys were very accessible and uh, always took time to sign an autograph. You know, uh, there's there's a picture of you uh, that was run several times, and I think in the Memphis program, it, it's a I think it's just a simple black T-shirt. It says Nautilus on it. Uh, I had yeah. a I had a framed black and white photo of you uh, autographed. And for for years, and you know, it it was just one of those things. It, it just and you politely, you know, asked you, you. I was nervous. You you know, asked you asked about me, you know, and it made me feel special. And uh, yeah, so you 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 had a, you had a fan for life at that point. And I'm sure you and I'm sure you remember and I'm sure you remember that. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I'm not a t-shirt on. I got. That was Mike Stark. Give me that shirt. Oh, okay, Mike. Mike the Mule Stark. Yeah, yeah. But he run not. He but that was his gym. He owned that one. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was that was the really uh, that was another feud that that uh, that I saw you that where you really made it because the size difference was so uh, vast between you two. And I believe it's a coal miners glove match, and he was just beating the stew out of you. And I think. Yeah, but then you slipped away, and you were able to get the glove, and that evened the eye, kind of like David and Goliath. He had the slingshot; you yeah. had the you had the coal miner's glove. Oh, 
But uh, well, I, Bill, I know, I know we've uh, taken up a lot of your time. I, I, we, uh, this is the anniversary of the infamous Loser Leaf Town match in '83 that a lot of people point to as the best match in the territory. Uh, certainly, if you if you go back and watch it, it holds up. Uh, and, and usually, when I post it, I, I usually honor the anniversary and, and post some clips or uh, the entire the entire match when WWE doesn't try to squash it because uh, they think they own that the footage to that but uh the, everyone always remarks my god the punches you know how yeah. wow how stiff it, uh, unbelievable and you guys did virtually the same match i think uh starting off in lexington uh nashville uh, uh memphis on monday night and then tuesday it was kind of rare where memphis didn't get the bout first and that the, the, there are two go home shows for that but it was a week behind and, and, and all them other towns. Whatever we did that Monday was the next week in Louisville, Lexington, and Nashville. And, but just, you know, and the, the deal with all the, the baby faces in the heels surrounding the ring, uh, as if the boys were saying, you know, we, shit, you know, we need to be at ringside. We got to see what happens. Uh, it just made yeah. it, yeah, it just made it so cool. See, that was all Janet's thinking, but which would be true of the match was that big to the people. It would be that big to to the to the boys. So he made them watch. What do you think? How did they feel about? It? I always kind of wonder, like maybe, maybe you know, the first few times. I mean, seeing two legends go at it. Uh, but I kind of wonder, like maybe how Steve Kern or Stan Lane felt the the fourth or oh, the fourth time in Louisville <laughs> sitting through. You're kind of pissed off because. Because you want to go home, but you know if you t- turn comes, they'll do, they'll do the same for you. So you know it's a, it's a team effort. Yeah, uh, and at, at the height of, uh, and I'm sure that that you had, that when you turned heel, you probably had to take a pay cut because I'm sure that hurt your gimmick sales. Uh, oh yeah. How much money were you? How much, how much money were you making in your, at, at your peak? Two dollars. Well, yeah. <laughs> Well, I know the pictures were going for that, but how much? How much? I mean, like, like a week? How much? <laughs> one picture a week is all I saw. Oh, come on now! No, <laughs> well, I can't do that. Oh, I see what you. Yeah, you, you, you got it. You figured it out now, right? Yeah, I, I just. Yeah, we wouldn't want Irwin R. Scheister. Uh, yeah, <laughs> a big fan of the program. Yeah, well, uh, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe some of those numbers were inflated that I heard about. Uh, moving right along, moving right along. Uh, do you think that 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 feud worked and the '79 feud uh, didn't attend it twice because the roles were reversed this time with you as a heel and Lawler as a babyface? Ah, uh, yeah. If, if, if you don't capture the people's imagination. It don't work the same. I think they bought him better as a heel than they did me. Oh, I, but man, your interviews were tremendous, and it was such a. It, it, it all started very. It was very subtle. Uh, it was the Christmas show at Jerry Jarrett's house that they taped, uh, and you guys are sitting. And Terry Taylor is the champion, and and you're still a babyface, but you say, "Hey, Terry, I just want you to know, in the new year, I'm very proud of your success, but I'm coming after that belt." Just very straightforward. Uh, and then when you finally do meet, I think in February, a uh, little bit of a low blow situation there, controversial, and uh, you wrap him up and, and and take the title. And again, they keep you and Lawler away for a bit, and then it's put on the fast track because of this deal with Ole Anderson. Uh, did, how did you feel about that? Uh, were you somewhat excited that you would be the one calling all the shots? 
and getting your foot in the door as a booker, or did you want to stay? Well, when I was going off to work for Oli, yeah, I, I I don't really know. I mean, I've had all the stories. I had all the stories on Oli how he was and screaming and hollering, but he couldn't be no worse than Bill Watts. <laughs> so I thought, well, I work for Bill Watts. I'll go give Oli a shot. But Oli didn't understand what we was we was doing. When I brought Adrian Street in, he said, "What is that?" I said, Ellie, go hook up with him, and he'll show you that he, he can wrestle as well. as You know what I mean? He's, he's a shooter, oh, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. So when Ole realized that, he kind of – but he didn't like the street gimmick. Right. But we drew money with him, so Ole was just one of them guys, just stri- straightforward professional wrestling the way it was done in the 50s, and he didn't want to change. He didn't want to change. Well, and I'm sure Bill Watts maybe initially didn't, but once he saw what you were doing, of course, Bill Watts came in part of this talent trade with uh, Jarrett and you went there as Booker and, and actually, you know, did a lot of stuff initially that, that Jarrett had done, but instead of the, like, instead of the fabs, it was the rock and roll and the, and the rock and roll were the first ones and, and weren't in the understudy role in Memphis that, you know, it was always Stan and Steve were on top and Rock, Ricky and Robert were right under, but they go to Mid South, and you and uh, you use them brilliantly. You debut Terry Taylor, I think, in brilliant fashion. He comes in and challenges Nik- Nikolai Volkov, and gets a uh, uh, moves out of the way as Nik- Nikolai is charging in and gets a roll up. He, you know, instant superstar right there. You get to see your handiwork as because all of these episodes now are up on uh, WWE uh, Network, and it's 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 really something to see. It's because uh, you're changing the the formula that Bill Watts has been using yeah. for years. Was he right. was he was he open to that uh, and, and enthusiastic about it? When once he saw that it would draw, <laughs> after the first couple of months, he was real enthusiastic when his checkbook doubled. <laughs> yep. I mean, he, he'll tell you I drew more money in the three years I was there, and he did the five years before that. Yeah, and yeah, so, and, and just strong. Here is the other thing. Louisiana had never seen a baby-faced team like the Rock and Roll Express, especially Ricky Ricky Morton. Ricky Morton can sell his ass off, and you think he's dead. Then he would tag Robert. It would start to come back, do that that double drop kick, and the place would come unglued. Yeah, yeah, and I love how Ricky would almost reach out to the crowd, you know, like, help help me. Right. Oh, and 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 it's hard to you know fans because they don't see that reaction today. Uh, I saw a house show that was taped in the Carolinas. You know, one of these that's in like five thousand seat arena, but it's packed, and it sounds like the Beatles. You know, (laughs) are walking through are walking through the curtain. Uh, It's just it's it's amazing, but. well, Bill, uh, tell me now. You, you're you're in the middle of a transition. You're starting your own podcast. Uh, right. Can can, can I give you the things to tell the people how they can get on? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I believe it, it's the same title uh, as the as the book you did with Mark James. If you don't want the answers, don't ask the questions. Uh, which right. sa- which sounds like you're going to really go in in a lot of detail. So yeah, we do that, and the other one is if you don't want the answer. Don't ask the question. That's then the other one. Super just Facebook group is Superstar Bill Dundee. 
And the Twitter account is Bill Dundee. All right. Uh, oh, so you're on you're on Twitter now. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. Well, well I, I think we're already connected on Facebook, and so uh, yeah, I'll connect to you on on Twitter, and we'll uh, continue this dialogue. I hope because I, I really enjoyed uh, talking with you today, and I want to. I'd like to get into some more details about uh, the Mid South Run and uh, everything, and how uh, obviously the the influence from Jerry Jarrett was there, um, and. Uh, you know, you you received rave reviews from everyone I, I, I've spoken to about being just a hell of a Finnish guy. Well, that, that and and again, I, sometimes I get mad at Jared. We we you know back in the day we would cuss at one another occasionally, but if it hadn't been for Jerry Jarrett, there would have been no Bill Dundee and George Barnes back in 1975. And then he taught me everything I needed to know to work in the office of a wrestling company. When yeah. I went and talked to about making me the booker, he said, okay, book something. I said, do what? He said, book something. I, I ain't got a clue. And so he said, be in the office Monday morning with your, with your notebook and pencil, and we'll start you know, show you what to do. So that's how it all started. Yeah. And do you think that that was sort of like, uh, you know, the underlying tension between you and Lawler, obviously both wanting to be the top draw. Uh, I I think he had to be aware of the crowds that you guys were drawing when he was in exile. (laughs) It probably probably was like a little like, who who are these guys drawing money? Uh, uh, Just pure speculation on my part. And then he comes back and sees how over you are. Uh, I'm sure... I'm sure that had to be a little unsettling. And then, uh, you know, the, you're working hard at this. You know, for, for Lawler, I think it maybe came a little more naturally. But you're you're a workaholic, and you're you're in the office early. Lawler's doing it on the fly. Uh, you guys just had different approaches uh, the the way you you the way you handle things, uh, and that couldn't help in, a, in maybe a subconscious way, like seep into the to the feud and in the in the interviews. I would think. Yeah, I mean, here's the other thing. I. I understood that Lawler was part of the office. He'd been here longer than me. He was Jared's friend, uh, off and on, I guess. And there was, you wasn't knocking him out of the spot, so there was no sense trying to. I watched other people come in here and try to take Lawler's spot. All they were were leaving. You know, they just fired him. And he wasn't going to put up with anybody challenging him real close. So. If you didn't play ball, you just left the ball field. Yeah, yeah, and I believe that that that, that was that that was sort of the Rob, the Robert uh, Fuller story, I think, in '79. So, well, technically, but Robert came in here with big expectations and wanted to do it his way, and his way wasn't working, and Lawler wasn't really giving him any cooperation. So, Robert. Tried to put Robert in Lawler's spot, and it didn't work. Um, and but you, you know, you guys were a, were a hell of a team feuding with the Assassins over the Southern Tag Titles, and I always found it kind of interesting that whenever a, a new babyface came in, that they were immediately put with you because they knew that that would instantly get the, that guy over. Uh, Steve Kern, I think, is a great example. Uh, you know, enters the territory, good-looking guy. Uh, you know, fresh out of Florida, uh, worked Georgia as well. 
and he's instantly in that in that main event picture because he's associated with you. Like you've given your stamp of approval that this guy uh, can go. Right. And then they put us together for a little while, and that helps. They get the rub, and that helps them them get over. But here's the other thing with with the Fabs. For as good as the team as they were, if it hadn't been for Jackie Fargo endorsing them, they would never have got over Steve Kern as a single. Never got over here, and neither did Stan Lane. So it was the, the Jackie Fargo rub that got them over. But Ricky and Robert, they got over by themselves. That's true, yeah. And just with uh, your booking and, and uh, just shaking things up and giving the people in Mid-South something different. And they, 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 I hear that the demographic of the audience, you can almost see it week to week as you're watching this on WWE. It goes from, uh, you know, old men in the front row <laughs> to teenage right. girls screaming. Uh, right. Unbelievable. She's got her hair up at stake along with yours. That's right. Now, let me tell all you rednecks something. This ain't just a wrestling match. This goes back to 1975, Daddy, when Bill Superstar came here. And Jerry Lotto wasn't even here. He was off in Florida somewhere. George Barnes and I came in here, tamed this whole area. And then somebody says, bring Jerry Lotto back. The two Aussies just beat everybody up. So back comes Lotto, puts that stupid crown on his head, and he struts out and says, here I am, folks, the king of the South. Wrong, Daddy. That burned me up then, and it burns me up now. Okay, you're right, Lawler, and I'm taking nothing off you, Daddy. You're as bad as they are. You just showed a tape, and you whooped every sucker that's working in New York today. You beat everybody that is wrestling in New York City today, from Hulk Hogan to Jimmy Hart. You whooped them all, Lawler, and that's right. Beverly Dundee sat right there in the middle of the ring, and that barber shaved her head. And the week before that, I sat there and you shaved my head, Daddy. Well, I'm going to tell you something, Lawler. That burned me up from that day on, and I've dreamt about this day. I've dreamt about running you out of town, Lawler. And by God, the Dundies are going to do it. Because I don't like you, and I don't like you, and I hope Lawler comes down there and she climbs up into that ring because she'll beat her brains out. I don't like you, Lawler. I don't like nothing you stand for. You're looking at the new king of the South, Daddy. And all you rednecks may not like it. But by God, as sure as my name is Bill Dundee, I'm going to beat you, Lawler. I may be bleeding. I may be doing anything. But I'm going to get the last one, two, three, and you're gone, Lawler. Well, that's what it's all about. If Dundee can do what he says, it's all over with for Lawler. He'll be leaving. But on the other hand... If Lawler comes out victorious, a ball, Bill and Beverly Dundee. Going to be a classic match. We're going to be back with more action in a moment. And we want to thank the superstar for that interview. You know, Brian, if you had told me back in 1978 how I was nervously approaching Dundee to get his autograph on that black and white 8x10, that one day I would, first of all, be in the ring with him, 
I probably would have had a heart attack. And then if you had told me that years later after that, I would be able to interview this man and talk to him about his career, I would have been just absolutely thrilled to pieces. Uh, you know, I've told the story many times of how I'd go to the driveway to get the commercial appeal. And I was often a real big Dundee fan. And I remember he was up against Austin Idol in the main event, loser leave town. And I didn't know the result. And as if, you know, for good luck or whatever, you know, how Dundee would kind of do that. He'd kind of do this, this jostle, you know, like where he would, it was not quite the strut, but he'd kind of like jump up and down. I did that all the way down the driveway <laughs> thinking that somehow that would change the result. If it were, if it were, uh, if it were a bad one, not what I wanted to see. Uh, and I come to find out that Dundee had triumphed and sent the heartthrob on his way. And so I was a very excited young man as I strutted back into my house with newspaper in hand to hand off to my mother. Uh, man, just a lot of good childhood memories with the superstar, especially that summer of 77 where he and Lawler just took uh, their feud, started their feud, really established. They had met a few times before in 75, but this is the one that really established themselves has the top two rivals in the territory. Uh, thing that goes on to this day. I mean, I think these, I, I've said it before. I think these two guys will be wrestling each other at the gates of hell, along with Terry Funk, uh, you know, trying to get in and interfere uh, for eternity. Uh, so we thank him once again from the bottom of my heart for him uh, appearing on the show today. Just want to remind everybody that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow Brian Last on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can follow me at Trav. Scott Bowden. And don't forget to stop by the official store of the KFR podcast, Memphis Wrestling Tees. We're going to have a whole bunch of new designs dropping over the next 48 hours uh, with explosive deals you won't believe. And we're also going to donate for 48 hours only, July 4th, July 5th, $3 from every shirt sold will go to Jerry Gray's GoFundMe account. As most of you know, the golden boy is battling stage four colon cancer. And quite frankly, he needs some money to help pay for some tests. So let's uh, let's continue to help him out. Sky uh, has been a mainstay on the 605, sharing all these great stories with us. It's the least we can do to help him out a little bit. So visit MemphisWrestlingTees.com. We're going to have a few special T-shirts available, again, for only 48 hours. And this is on the advice of my attorneys because it could get us into <coughs> copyright trouble. But uh, at any rate, check it out. And we'll see you next week on the KFR Podcast. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling.